Good morning, church. If you've got your Bibles, and I hope that you do, please turn to Genesis chapter 19. This morning we will be in verses 30 through 38. Last week we looked at the first half of chapter 19, the destruction of Sodom. We discovered from the angels who were sent there to destroy the city that the outcry of sin in that city had become great before the Lord and so he was going to destroy them as a result of that. But not before getting Lot and his family out of the city and rescuing them. And so the angels warn him to flee, to get out. But we saw him lingering in the city. There was something about the pull to Sodom that Lot found it difficult to flee from. He hesitates. But God in his mercy through the angels physically grab he and his wife and his two daughters by the arm and literally drag them out of the city and rescue them from the destruction as fire and sulfur begin to rain down on the city of Sodom and Gomorrah and destroy the cities of the valley. We learned a lot last week about the seriousness of sin and the wrath of God against sin and that he is a just God for judging rebellious mankind in their sin. Even Lot's wife, as we saw last week, as she looked back, disobeying the command of God through the angels, something about that city that drew her back, that she didn't want to leave, at least inwardly. And so when she looked back, she too was judged and turned into a pillar of salt. When we left Lot at the end of our passage, Last week, he was in Zoar. He and his daughters had escaped to the city of Zoar. The angel had told him to flee to the hills, but he was afraid to flee to the hills, and so he asked if he could flee to the town of Zoar, and they granted him that favor. So there they are. Sodom and Gomorrah are destroyed. The smoke of the ashes of those cities are rising up, And Abraham ascends the hill that just the day prior he had interceded for the Lord to to spare Sodom and Gomorrah. And Lot and his two daughters alone have survived and they're hunkered down in the little town of Zoar. And that's where we pick up the story this morning. But before we read, can I just tell you that this is an extraordinarily difficult passage to preach as I'm sure it's a very uncomfortable passage to hear preached. There are some weeks when I am extraordinarily glad that we are committed to expositional preaching verse by verse through books of Scripture. And then there are other weeks where I'm not so glad about that. This is one of those weeks. You see, expositional preaching starts with the text and believes, like we said last week, that every jot and tittle of the Word of God is the breath of God. It is inspired by God and profitable, as he told Timothy, for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. Every word, every verse, every sentence of Scripture is profitable for us in some way because it is the breath of God. 
even a passage like this morning. Topical preaching, on the other hand, which is what most preaching is today, instead doesn't begin with a text. It begins with a felt need that the preacher either discerns from the world or from his church or from his own life. So he begins with that felt need and then seeks to answer that felt need with something from Scripture. And can I just tell you that if that's the kind of preaching that you're committed to, you will never, ever, ever preach from Genesis 19, verses 30 through 38. We could probably go around the room this morning, and probably very few of us have ever heard a sermon on Genesis 19, 30 through 38. I don't say that with pride, I say that with just conviction that God's word is God's word and will allow it to speak to us this morning. I've been a Christian for, seven, for, for 35 years and in those 35 years I've never heard a sermon on this passage until this morning when I began to intentionally look for them and study this passage. And I don't mean to knock the churches that I've been a part of in the pack and in, in, in the past. In fact, Spurgeon himself, the great prince of pre- preachers, I've got 10 volumes of his sermons in my office. And to my knowledge, maybe they weren't printed. That's likely the case. But, but to my knowledge, he never preached on this passage. Not a single sermon, at least, that is printed. Some old commentaries get to this passage of Scripture and say it is unpreachable and should not be preached. In 1948, when the Calvin Translation Society was translating John Calvin's exposition of the book of Genesis from Latin into English, they get to this passage and they skip it. I mean, they get to verse 31, and then it just skips straight over to chapter 20. Now, you can go and you can read John Calvin's exposition. He did exposit on this passage of Scripture, and so... In the ensuing years, his commentaries have been translated into English, but if you pull up the old ones even today, it skips this entire section because it's uncomfortable, it's shameful, it's hard to hear and even harder to preach, but it is still part of the inspired Word of God. It's still, by our conviction, His breath, and so it is profitable for us for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. So so this morning, let us let God speak. And then we'll seek to understand what profit this passage will be to us today. And so follow along in your copy of the Scriptures as we read Genesis 19, verses 30 through 38. Now Lot went up out of Zoar and lived in the hills with his two daughters, for he was afraid to live in Zoar, so he lived in a cave with his two daughters. And the firstborn said to the younger, Our father is old, and there is not a man on earth to come into us after the manner of all the earth. Come, let us make our father drink wine, and we will lie with him, that we may preserve offspring from our father. So they made their father drink wine that night, and the firstborn went in and lay with her father. He did not know when she lay down or when she arose. The next day the firstborn said to the younger, Behold, I lay last night with my father. Let us make him drink wine tonight also, 
then you go in and lie with him, that we may preserve offspring from our father. So they made their father drink wine that night also, and the younger arose and lay with him, and he did not know when she lay down or when she arose. Thus both the daughters of Lot became pregnant by their father. The firstborn bore a son and called his name Moab. He is the father of the Moabites to this day. The younger also bore a son and called his name Ben-Ami. He is the father of the Ammonites to this day. Would you pray with me? Gracious, holy God, we thank you for this book. And God, we ask by your spirit that you would speak to us and that you would bring profit to our lives from this passage. Would you teach us? Would you reprove us and rebuke us? Correct us, and Lord, would you train us for righteousness through this word? It is precious. It is your breath, and we thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen. There are two overarching lessons from this passage that we want to walk away with. First is the culmination of Lot's wicked descent, his downward spiral into sin and the moral corruption that accompanied it. And the implications that it had on he and his family for generations. So that's the first thing. The second is to see a foreshadowing of grace here. The former is going to be a lot more obvious and plain than the latter. It's going to take up the bulk of this entire passage. The latter of those lessons is more subtle, perhaps hidden beneath the surface perhaps only seen when viewed through the lens of the New Testament. But it's there, and we'll see it together. So let us look first into Lot's wicked descent. This passage at the end of chapter 19 is really a postscript, an addendum, if you will, on the story of the destruction of Sodom that we saw in the first part of chapter 19 from last week. After the destruction of the cities of the valley, we're left wondering what happens to Lot. What becomes of him and his daughters? And in these closing verses, we're told the sad and shameful end of Lot's life. Because this is the last that we hear of Lot. We hear of Lot's descendants numerous times throughout the remainder of Scripture and not in a good light, as we'll see. But this is the last that we hear of the man, Lot, and the legacy of his wickedness. So if we're going to really see Lot's wickedness here, then we need to go back to the beginning of his story. Because what we have in verses 30 through 38 is just the, it's the end of the story. And the sad and sordid legacy that he leaves. But to get the full picture, we need to go back when, when we were first introduced to this man named Lot. We first encountered him back in chapter 11 as Moses, the writer of this book, is is setting the stage for the story of the patriarchs. And we're introduced to this man who lives in Ur of the Chaldeans named Terah. And he lives there with his sons, Abram, who would later become Abraham, 
and Haran, Abraham's brother. And Terah has a grandson there. His name is Lot. He is the son of Abraham's brother, Haran. And so he is Abraham's nephew, and Abraham is his uncle. So later in chapter 12, when God calls Abraham out of Ur of the Chaldeans to a land that he will show him, and Moses begins the story of the patriarchs, it is his nephew Lot that is traveling with him, setting out on adventure, an adventure of faith, trusting in this God, Yahweh, who is speaking to Abraham, his uncle. And when they finally enter into Canaan, they're already extremely wealthy. They have many herds and flocks and lots of servants that are traveling with them as they settle in Canaan. Then in chapter 13, that becomes the means by which or the the, the means that makes it necessary for Lot and his uncle Abraham to separate. Their herdsmen are are arguing with one another that there's not enough room for their herds to to feed on the pasture, and so they need to separate. And we're told there that Lot chooses the cities of the valley, not because he was being led by the Lord to do so. His, His motive was not one of trusting God and his promises, but instead he was looking to what was desirable to him. Listen to how Moses puts this in Genesis 13, verses 10 through 13. And Lot lifted up his eyes and saw that the Jordan Valley was well watered everywhere, like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt, in the direction of Zoar. And then Moses adds parenthetically, this was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. So Lot chose for himself all the Jordan Valley, and Lot journeyed east. Thus they separated from each other. Abram settled in the land of Canaan, while Lot settled among the cities of the valley and moved his tent as far as Sodom. Now the men of Sodom were wicked, great sinners against the Lord. Now it's subtle here, but what we need to see is that Lot chose not based on God's promises, But he chose based on what was easy and comfortable. His choice was one of ease and comfort. This was something that was desirable to him. There was something about the city that was was drawing him to that. And we see him move his tent toward Sodom. He, he, He pitches his tent on the outskirts of this city. And the next chapter, in chapter 14, now he's living in the city. He's no longer on the outskirts. Now the draw of the city has drawn him into the city, and now he's a full-blown resident. And you remember the story in chapter 14. This, this army led by King Ketelomer from the east, this coalition army of foreign invading countries, come into Canaan and begin to defeat the cities of the valley and they enter into Sodom and they destroy Sodom and and they take Lot captive, take him away. And then Abraham and his hired men miraculously go out and defeat that invading army and rescue his nephew Lot from that. And don't you know that would have been the perfect time for Lot to say, Maybe now's a good time to not go back to Sodom. 
We're told later by, by Peter in 2 Peter that he was tormented in his soul by the sin that was in Sodom. It was happening at that time too. This would have been a great time for him to say, the Lord has delivered me from this. According to his providence, I'll not go back. But he does. He returns to the city. I'm reminded of Proverbs 26, 11 here. Like a dog that returns to his vomit is a fool who repeats his folly. That's Lot. We don't hear anything about Lot for a few chapters until we get to chapter 19. And where do we find him at the beginning of chapter 19? Now he's sitting at the gate. He's not just a full-blown resident. He's, he's sitting at the gate. The, the gate of the city is where the city leader, leaders would administer justice and handle civil matters. And so many have posited that this, this means that now Lot was one of the leaders of the city exhibiting influence in the city now. So there's no question that he's, he's fully aware of the sin of the city. Not only are we told that by Second Peter, he's, he's tormented his, in his soul by the sin that is occurring, the wickedness in Sodom. But also in the very text of chapter 19 itself, as we saw last week, as the, as the two visitors come to town, the two angels, he thinks they're just men, but they come to town and they say that they're going to spend the night in the city square and Lot's like, no way. He knows what's going to happen to them if they, are, if they spend the night in the city square and so he implores them, no, come to my house, stay with me. But although he was aware of the sin of Sodom, and repulsed by it, by the way, still, when he's warned to flee by the angels, he lingers. In verse 16, he, he lingered there. There was something about that city that drew him in, that made him want to stay. Something was pulling on him to stay near the wickedness this is also what pulls Lot's wife to look back, longingly desiring to not leave Sodom as she's turned into a pillar of salt. It's the subtle pull of the world, the siren call of sin that is having such an effect on Lot's life. And what we see in this passage, among other things, is that this pull of the world, this siren call of sin is not just a pull and a pathway towards greater sin, but it is a pull away from faith in God. It's a pull away from a life of faith. It's a pull away from God himself. And so now we find ourselves in our text this morning, and we're told in verse 30 that he went up out of Zoar and lived in the hills with his two daughters, for he was afraid to live in Zoar. So he lived in a cave with his two daughters. We don't know why he was afraid to live in Zoar. Perhaps he had begun to see the same sort of sin in Zoar as he had seen in Sodom. He was afraid that maybe God would judge that town as well. But for whatever reason, he now seems to be heeding the advice and the counsel of the angels when they first told him to flee to the hills. And so he does, and he ends up in a cave with his two daughters. But the point here is that he didn't go there out of faithful obedience. He went there out of fear. 
At first, he was fearful of living in the hills, and so he escaped to Zoar. Now he's fearful of living in Zoar, and so he escapes to the hills. Lot makes his decisions based not on what the Lord wants him to do, based not on God's promises, but he makes his decisions based on fear and what is comfortable. And I suppose you could say that in a certain sense, those are one and the same. That draw to comfort is also a, an escape from fear, from what we fear, which is a lack of comfort, and an absence of what is comfortable and easy. In chapter 13, what looked comfortable to Lot was the cities of the valley. It looked like the garden. It looked like that fertile land of Egypt with the Nile. It looked like it would be easy. It would be comfortable there. And then he looked at the land of Canaan, the land of promise, and it looked dry. And it looked hard. And so out of a fear of what was hard and uncomfortable, Lot chose what was to him easy and comfortable. And here in chapter 19, he's doing the same thing. He's making his decision not based on faith, but based on fear. He's making his decision based on sight, not based on faith. And it's just another step in his wicked descent, his downward spiral into sin and the moral corruption that corrupted him and his family. Then the, the action in the story now shifts to Lot's daughters, who in this story are unnamed by Moses. They are simply known as the firstborn and the younger. We're told here that they too are fearful. They're fearful that their father's lineage will die out. He has no sons. They have no husbands. They, their, their fiancés had perished in the destruction of Sodom. And so how will their father's lineage continue on? They're fearful of that. And out of that fear, they commit these despicable acts. Some have said that they fear that there were no men on the face of the earth and that they did this out of that fear. I don't buy that because they had just escaped out of Zoar. Clearly, presumably, there were men in Zoar. But regardless, out of fear, they commit what is one of the most deplorable and sordid acts in all of Scripture. And we, know, we should note here that there's never any mention of the Lord by these daughters. They've not been taught to trust the Lord. They've not been discipled to follow his promises, to do what is right, no matter what the cost is. Instead, their standard of conduct, by their very own words in verse 31, is after the manner of all the earth. In other words, their standard of conduct is what most people do. And so, wanting, as most people do, for their father's lineage to continue, no matter what the cost, they commit incest. Now, we should be very, very clear here that God's law, particularly in Leviticus chapter 18, explicitly outlaws what happens here. So there's no question that this is morally corrupt, that this is wrong, that this is sinful. But there's also an indication here that they knew that. The daughters knew that because they knew that their father would, would not stand for this while he was still sober. 
And so they conspire to get him drunk. So the narrative goes to great lengths then to describe that Lot didn't know what was going on. He was completely unaware. Twice we're told he did not know when she lay down or when she arose. But does this absolve Lot of any guilt in this act? No, it does not. And for three reasons. Just because he wasn't aware of the physical act itself doesn't mean that he wasn't complicit in the sin that took place here. He too bore great guilt of what happened. Three reasons for this. Number one, he he was a failure as a father. Number two, he set a poor example for his children. And number three, one of his very own sins actively paved the way for what happened here. Lot goes down in the pages of Scripture as one of the sorriest fathers in the Bible. He's a terrible father. He shows no spiritual leadership. And when he's forced to by the angels in last week's passage to warn his sons-in-law of the judgment of God that is coming upon him, they think he's joking. Apparently, Lot is a jokester and... He hasn't warned anybody. He never speaks about the judgment of God. He's never spoken about the wrath of God. And so when he finally is forced to by the angels, it is so foreign to his sons-in-laws from the mouth of Lot that they think he's pulling their leg. It's a joke. We saw him defending the visitors from the men of the city. That was good. But then he offers his daughters to them instead. One of the most vile and evil offers in all of Scripture. Men, one of our jobs as dads is to protect our children. And particularly fathers of daughters to protect their purity and their chastity until God sees fit to bring them a husband. Apparently, Lot had done that for a time because his daughters were virgins, but then he commits the unthinkable, and he offers his daughters to the men of the city to be abused by them, and it's only by God's grace that they refuse. And then here, too, in the closing verses of chapter 19, the the horribly misguided actions of his daughters demonstrate for us the lack of guidance from a father. He didn't disciple them. He didn't protect them. And now he's reaping the poison fruit. Lot also sets a bad example for his daughters. And of course, this is another reason why he's such a poor father, because he sets a bad example for his children. What is the example that he set? Well, we've already said that he made his decisions based on fear, not on faith. And that's exactly what his daughters are doing here. Make it a decision based on fear, not on faith, not on trusting God. He was drawn to, he, he, was, he, he lingered in the worldliness of Sodom. And now so are his daughters. They're only doing what the world would expect them to do in order to keep their father's lineage intact, no matter the cost. So it's true that the apple doesn't fall far from the tree. 
But also, Lot is also complicit in the sin of his daughters here. Because one of his very own sins actively paves the way for the sordid actions of his daughters. What, what was the sin of Lot that allows his daughters to take advantage of him? It's drunkenness. Lot had a problem with alcohol. He had a problem with sin, with, with wine. Now we're told that it's his daughters that make him drink wine, but let's think about that for a moment. How do his daughters know that it's through giving him wine that will make him so completely ripped that he doesn't know what, he's going, what was going on around him? They can only know that because it's happened before. It's happened before. And they know that if they can just get him to drink, that he'll get so messed up that he won't even know when someone comes in his tent at night. He's got a problem. He's got a reputation for drunkenness. Secondly, I don't know of any daughter that can force their father to drink wine. He's active in this. He willingly gives himself to the wine, even though he knows that it was likely to cause him to lose all awareness. Thirdly, we know from wine of that day that it had a very low alcohol content compared to wine today. And so he really had to work at this. And he did, apparently two nights in a row. He had a weakness for alcohol. And it paved a way for one of the most deplorable and sordid acts in all of Scripture. Paul warns us in Ephesians 5.18, Do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery. Instead, be filled with the Spirit. Debauchery means it leads to a life of debauchery. Instead, be filled with the Spirit. In other words, don't be controlled by anything else but the Holy Spirit himself. Be controlled by the Holy Spirit, not by some substance. King Solomon in Proverbs 23 paints a picture of what it's like to drink too much alcohol, and he would know. Listen to what he says. He says, who has woe, who has sorrow, who has strife, who has complaining, who has wounds without cause, who has redness of eyes, those who tarry long over wine, those who go to try mixed wine. Do not look at wine when it is red, when it sparkles in the cup and goes down smoothly. In the end, it bites like a serpent and stings like an adder. Your eyes will see strange things, and your heart will utter perverse things. You will be like one who lies down in the midst of the sea, like one who lies on the top of a mast. They struck me, you will say, but I was not hurt. They beat me, but I didn't feel it. When shall I awake? I must have another drink. Or we could add here, you'll lie down in a tent, in a cave, and your daughters will commit despicable acts with you, and you will be completely unaware of what happens. Now let me be clear, there is no prohibition in Scripture against drinking alcohol. A responsible consumption of alcohol is in complete accord, I believe, 
with the biblical record. So let's be clear about that. I'm not telling you that the Bible says that you should not or you ought not to drink alcohol. This is squarely within the realm of Christian liberty that Paul deals with very clearly in Romans chapter 14. But can we just admit for a moment that if it weren't for alcohol, this scene would have never happened? It wasn't the wine. It was Lot who abused the wine. Yes, that's true. But if he hadn't brought wine into the cave, this wouldn't have happened. If nothing else, church, this should be a sober warning to us of the danger of alcohol. The prohibition of Scripture is not don't drink, but don't get drunk. Don't drink too much wine. But here's the thing. If one of the effects of alcohol is to lower one's inhibitions... And to dull our sense of awareness, how do we know when too much is too much? We'll give Lot the benefit of the doubt and say that he didn't know when too much was too much. Perhaps there's something here that we can chew on and seek to apply to our lives so we can live honorably and glorify God with our body and our lives. But all of this is a part of Lot's downward spiral, his wicked descent into moral corruption. But sadly, we're not done. The last two verses here demonstrate for us a legacy of wickedness on the part of Lot and the memory of his life for generations to come. Look at verses 37 and 38. The firstborn bore a son and called his name Moab, He is the father of the Moabites to this day. The younger also bore a son and called his name Ben-Ami. He is the father of the Ammonites to this day. So Lot's two daughters become pregnant by him and they each give birth to a son. The oldest daughter's son is named Moab. The youngest daughter's son is named Ben-Ami. And their names themselves are salt in the wound for Lot. Moab means from my father. Ben-Ami means from my people. But the writer Moses here makes clear that these two sons become the father of a people. Moab becomes the father of the Moabites, and Ben-Ami becomes the father of the Ammonites. Two peoples who become notorious in Israel's history. Moabites and the Ammonites will become particularly troublesome for Israel throughout her history. Story after story, from Numbers to Deuteronomy to the prophets, we see these harsh hostilities between Israel and the Moabites, between Israel and the Ammonites. But it's not just hostility with Israel that's the problem. They become troublesome for Israel also because of a thing called syncretism. They begin to flirt with the gods of the Moabites and the Ammonites. Listen to this story from Numbers 25, verses 1 through 3. While Israel lived in Shittim, which is a city in Canaan, the people began to whore with the daughters of Moab, the people being the Israelites, 
they began to whore with the daughters of Moab. And these Moabites lived, invited the people to the sacrifices of their gods. And the people, that is the Israelites, ate and bowed down to their gods. So Israel yoked himself to Baal of Peor, one of the Moabite gods. And the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. So the Israelites mixed in some Baal worship from the Moabites. And they also flirted with one of the gods of the Ammonites, namely Molech. And a Molech was particularly troublesome because the way you worship Molech was by sacrificing your child to him in a fire. And the Israelites gave themselves to this. Listen to this sad account from Solomon's exploits in 1 Kings chapter 11. Then Solomon built a high place, that's an altar, built a high place to Chemosh, the abomination of Moab, another one of the gods of, Mo, of the Moabites. And for Molech, the abomination of the Ammonites on the mountain east of Jerusalem. And so he did for all his foreign wives, all 700 of them and 300 concubines who made offerings and sacrifice to their gods. And these abominations, church, find their nexus in a cave with Lot and his daughters. This is the legacy of Lot. Lot's wicked descent concluded here in the closing verses of chapter 19 should be a strong warning to us today. James Montgomery Boyce writes that the testimony of Lot's life teaches us that the course of sin is always downhill. That's where it heads. That's why it's called a downward spiral. The course of sin is always downhill. It makes great promises of fulfillment and satisfaction, and they're always empty promises. And what they deliver is always the opposite. Destruction disappointment, and death. James warns us in the first chapter of his epistle, verses 13 through 15, let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. That's always the way of sin. Appeals to a desire in us. That desire gives birth, conceives and gives birth to sin, and sin always leads to death. This is the warning from Lot's life. Yesterday, we had uh, the privilege of going to one of my son's swim meets out in Cherokee, on the northwest side of Atlanta been a while since I've been up there, and um, I don't know if you've been on 575 in the last few years. I haven't, but there's an express lane there, but it's not like the express lanes that we have in the Northeast Corridor. It's one of these express lanes that's completely divided off from the north and southbound lanes, and it only goes one, one way, and in the morning when everybody's going, going southbound, there are these huge barriers that come down on the northbound lane so that you can't enter into the express lane. And later in the afternoon, when everybody's going northbound out of the city, 
They bring these huge barriers down on the southbound lane so that you can't enter the express lane. That's a good thing. Now, I've, I've never driven in one of those express lanes. First of all, because I'm cheap. But also, if I'm honest, it's because I'm a little bit scared that maybe when I'm going southbound, that there's going to be some kind of mix-up in, mix, mix, mix in the system. There's going to be a malfunction, and the northbound barriers will rise up. And if you're going southbound on a one-way express lane, and there's northbound traffic, it's a problem. The purpose of an express lane is to get you to your goal quicker, but if there's a malfunction, it'll just lead you quicker to your death. Friends, sin is that express lane that is horribly malfunctioned. And you better get off quick. You better get off quick because there's opposing traffic coming and you're driving fast to your death. That's the warning of Lot's life, chronicled through Genesis 12 to Genesis 19, seven chapters where we see this downward spiral and the devastating effects on his life, the life of his family, and his legacy for generations to come. Rabbi Zacharias says, sin will always take you farther than you want to go, keep you longer than you want to stay, And cost you more than you want to pay. And so friend, if you're on that express lane this morning, you're flirting with sin. Let me just warn you, get off. Exit the express lane. Get out of Sodom while you can. Repent. And trust in Christ while you can. This is the great warning from Lot's life and his wicked descent. But in the closing passage here in chapter 19, we see also a foreshadowing of grace. Because although although the, the clear legacy of Lot's descendants through his daughters, the Moabites and the Ammonites, though the clear legacy that is left here of his descendants is one of hostility with God's people, as well as paganism and idolatry there's also a glimmer of hope that is foreshadowed here if you look in your bible don't do it right now but i encourage you to do so later nestled right between the book of judges and first samuel is a short four chapter book called ruth and ruth is a book about a moabite woman named ruth who through the influence of her mother-in-law, Naomi, an Israelite, becomes a convert to Judaism. Naomi and her husband and her two daughters travel to the land of the Moabites in search of food. There was famine in their land. So they're in search of food, and over time, Naomi's husband dies And their two sons, who had married Moabite women, one of whom was Ruth, also die. So Naomi determines to go back to Israel, back to her homeland. And she instructs her two now daughters-in-law, 
whose husbands have died, stay here. Stay in your homeland. Stay with your people. Stay with your gods. And Ruth changes the whole course of history for the Moabites. In verse 16 of chapter 1 of Ruth, when she says, Do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. Where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people will be my people, and your God will be my God. So she does. She returns to Judah with Naomi. And God, in God's kindness and providence, he provides a husband, a kinsman redeemer from Judah by the name of Boaz. They get married, and Boaz and Ruth have a son whose name is Obed. Obed Obed will later have a son whose name is Jesse. And the youngest of Jesse's son is David, the greatest king of Israel, and a descendant of the Lord Jesus Christ. The Moabites, the ancient foes of God's people, idol worshipers, child sacrificers, and yet here is this Moabite woman in the genealogy of the Son of God. In fact, if you go to the book of Matthew, in the first chapter, in the opening verses, as Matthew is giving the genealogy of Jesus, it's right there in verse 5. It says, And Salmon, the father of Boaz, by Rahab, and Boaz, the father of Obed, by Ruth, and Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of David, the king. Here's this Moabite woman in the lineage of the Lord Jesus Christ. And isn't that just like our God? To take what is broken, to take what is wicked, and transform it into something beautiful and useful in God's kingdom. That's just like God. Jesus has wickedness in his lineage. Of course, he didn't inherit a sin nature. But we see it right there in his lineage. Part of it we saw in what we just read. Rahab, who was what? A harlot. But he also came for wickedness. He came to defeat it. Wickedness betrayed him. Wickedness turned him over to the authorities. It was wickedness that led Pontius Pilate allow him to be taken away, to be crucified, though he knew him to be innocent. Wickedness flogged Jesus and put a crown of thorns on his head. Wickedness nailed him to a tree. Wickedness spat insults at him and killed him. But after wickedness had dealt its blow, it was Jesus who crushed wickedness. It was Jesus who crushed wickedness and sin by dying on a cross and being the perfect sacrifice for the sins of all those who would come to faith in him. And then the victory over wickedness and sin 
was portrayed and seen and verified when Jesus rose from the dead three days later. So from this passage, we should certainly, we should be warned to flee from sin. We should be warned to get out of Sodom while we can. And by the way, when I say get out of Sodom, I don't mean recluse ourselves from the world. For we have been told, we have been sent into the world to be salt and light. And what I mean when I say we should get out of sin while we can is to flee from the corrupting influence of the world around us. We're to be in the world, but not of it. And so flee from it. This should be a warning to flee from sin and be wary of the influence of the world on us and our family. But no matter how much we try to flee, no matter how much we try to clean up our lives, we will never make ourselves acceptable to God. But this God has become one of us. And he has lived a life of righteousness that we could never live. And he has died in our place to take the penalty of sin that we deserve on himself so that by faith in him we can be forgiven, we can be restored, we can be redeemed, and we can be made useful in his kingdom. What is wicked can be used for God's glory. So church, let us, let us flee the sin that seeks to entangle us, the sin that seeks to kill us, the sin that promises joy and, and satisfaction and never delivers. And let us return to Christ, the rescuer of our souls, the redeemer of our lives, who will give us eternity with him and will transform us in this life for his glory. Let's pray.